Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smart Water Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as Mark Zuckerberg's private tutor, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is John Fallon, the CEO of Pearson, which is the largest education company in the world and the former owner of Penguin Random House and the Financial Times. Just recently, Pearson announced that it's going to pivot away from print textbooks and into digital textbooks that can be updated over time. I'm doing this podcast from London, England. John, welcome to Recode Decode. Nice to be here and welcome to London. Thank you. Uh, I should just say we still, own, we still own 25% of oh, okay. Random House. All right, okay. uh, Bertelsmann's the majority Bertelman shareholder, is, but right. we still own the 25%. Uh, we can talk about publishing in a minute. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You replaced Marjorie Scardino, um, who had been on the Twitter board and had been uh, involved in a couple of digital things. Talk Talk a little bit about your background, because I love to get what how people got to where they got. Well, I think you and I are, are probably of a similar generation. Mm-hmm. When I was in high school in Manchester in the north of England, uh, three big passions of my life were football or soccer, politics, and journalism. The first wasn't a realistic career option, so I... <laughs> I found the way of uh, making a career out of the the, the latter two. Uh, and actually, I spent the first 10 years of my professional life working for uh, the British Labour Party mm-hmm. in one form or uh, another. Uh, and then in my sort of early 30s, I made the switch over into uh, business and corporate life. Mm-hmm. I was one of Marjorie's first hires when she became the CEO of Pearson in 97, uh, really to run all of uh, corporate affairs. So I ran sort of investor relations, media, employee mm-hmm. communications. And I don't know if you remember that time. At yeah. the time, Pearson was still a, a big conglomerate. It was, uh, yeah. I mean, people forget that actually the first acquisition Marjorie made as CEO of Pearson was of a company called All American. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I still happily remember the afternoon I spent on uh, Baywatch Beach with David <laughs> Hasselhoff and, 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 and the like. Yeah. And it was a period when we were just Buying, oh, and, sorry, <laughs> buying and selling a lot yeah. of companies. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was your traditional publishing conglomerate, right? Yeah, so. yeah. well, I mean, Pearson itself is uh, coming to 175 years old, actually right. started in construction, built the railroad tunnels under the eastern Hudson Rivers in New York, amongst mm-hmm. many, many other things. Uh, and Marjorie actually was the first non-member of the Pearson family to right. be CEO. Uh, she was the first woman to be CEO mm-hmm. of a FTSE 100 company. Uh, so I, uh, she hired me. And then at about that time, if you remember, this was the, the first dot-com boom, which you remember right. very well. And this idea of uh, sort of, you know, that we're going to be more of a knowledge-based economy. Uh, the fourth did, industrial me, revolution did, didn't did, exist at the time. No, but, you know, this idea ever, about... When, it didn't sink in then. I think I recall being with a lot of the big publishers. In fact, I oddly enough went around 
to all the big publishers with Larry Page and Susan Wojcicki, yep. who now runs YouTube, who was trying to digitize things and at the time. And everybody gave them the, the long arm, essentially, including Random House, including others. And I remember them being very frustrated, um, talking, I was, it was oddly enough, there was a blackout and they were in my apartment. Um, they were very frustrated with the state of things and talking about the digitization. Of course, they got in trouble for just doing it on their own. Talk a little bit about that time, because I think, you know, just recently Barnes & Noble was sold. There's, you know, it's changed so drastically. Talk a little bit about what was going on in that time in publishing. In- well, and I think, uh, you know, Pearson did. So uh, Pearson made two big acquisitions at that time. We bought the Simon & Schuster Education Businesses, and then we bought uh, a company called NCS, which was an early stage online testing and student information company. Right. Uh, so you pivoted out into other services. Yeah, and then what we found at various points was that, you know, I, I guess, you know, it's the, the sort of um, the Bill Gates phrase, you sort of... Uh, overestimate the change in three years and underestimate the change in in Mm -hmm. 10. And I think we tried at that time probably to push technology harder and faster than many of our customers, which Mm -hmm. are obviously, you know, universities, school superintendents and the like were ready to go. And so I think what you have seen, though, is a a gradual change mm-hmm. over a period of 15 years. We'll, we'll perhaps talk a little about the, mm-hmm. the evolution of the textbook in a little while. But I think the first stage was um, automating the setting and marking of homework in right. quantitative disciplines like math, science. Where it could be. Uh, huge productivity gain for teachers. Mm-hmm. They could set homework without having to mark it. Good for students because actually something like math, guess what? The more you do it, it the better you get it, mm-hmm. it. And having personal feedback to you without your peers knowing mm-hmm. uh, is actually more sort of encouraging. And it frees the teacher up to focus more on where they can add value. real, real values. I think yeah. that sort of happened. Uh, I think then, uh, lo- but I think large-scale adoption in, for example, um, the K-12 sector, I think is still challenging Mm -hmm. just because of the sheer scale of the infrastructure changes that are required, the social role that teaching, that education plays, all that. I'd love to get you, like, when you were watching this first dot-com boom happening from here, even though you're a global company, what was the thinking? Was this was going to go away or this was the future and uh-oh or what was the mentality? Well, I think the, uh, you know, I think I... I moved to, uh, on the back of those two big acquisitions, Pearson was still very much London-centered company, the two big acquisitions were in America. So I actually moved to, with my family, to live and work out in New York at the end of 2000. And I think, you know, the Pearson share price reached an all-time high of mm-hmm. 23 quid. And I returned back to live out in the UK four years later, and I think we'd been as low as five pounds. And I think, you mm-hmm. know, it was on the back of the AOL Time Warner mm-hmm. boom and this idea that technology was going to take over sort right. of everything. But, you know, I think with hindsight, clearly we were all very naive. But I think, you know, Britain was caught up in the same thing that um, I was with um, uh, Brent Hoberman last night. Oh, he right. was a founder of, uh, you know, lastminute.com, which right. again, you know, so I mean, I think it was it was a smaller scale, but it was very much the same trends that you saw in the U.S. you saw right. here as right. well. So you worked your way up there and it took over last year, right? Correct. Yeah, I'd, after spending 10 years running our education businesses around the world outside of, I took over from Marjorie in 2000. Well, Breakdown Pearson, because it's a company people don't know, but it's the biggest textbook 
distributor yeah. in the world, which, of course, will be deeply impacted by technology. There's lots of companies like Chegg and others that are trying to do different things. Talk a little bit about what Pearson owns so people get a sense of it. So we are now, other than the 25% stake in Penguin Random House, it's now all about learning. Uh, we are still the uh, leading... That was your consumer play, Yeah, correct? we're still the leading education-related content business in the world. We lead in assessment and certification. But the fastest area of growth really is now in more services type offerings and actually combining the content and the assessment powered by technology to really provide much more personalized and adaptive Mm -hmm. learning. So, uh, I mean, we we were talking just before, I was with uh, Michael Crow, president of Arizona State University in in London for a few days. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's a major partner. We uh, helped to run uh, Arizona State University Online, which provides a pure online university experience. He's a fascinating guy. Fantastic. And all the rigor, all the quality. They educate the most people around us. Absolute outcomes as good mm-hmm. for their online students as their face-to-face students. Uh, the cost for a student who's out of state to, to Arizona is significantly lower mm-hmm. online, much more flexible, much more adaptive. Large numbers of working adults. I mean, one of the biggest challenges I think America has, we have something like uh, 30 million working adults who have paid for some form of university education, Mm -hmm. but have nothing to show for it. So a lot of it is around how do you help people to complete their university education, have the credential and the badge that enables them to progress. So we do a lot of that. We work in countries, you know, work in 70 countries around the world, 24,000 people, big digital transformation. So we're investing about a billion dollars a year in the research and development of things that help people to learn more right. effectively. But right that's now, essentially but, but, what we so do. that's where you're, you're moving to. But I just want to get people a sense of what Pearson had done. When you're thinking of textbooks, this is actual textbooks that you redo every three years. Explain how yeah, it's been done. So, so about uh, still about twenty, just over twenty percent of our five billion dollars in revenues, annual revenues, come from our U.S. higher education. Courseware or call it college publishing business, right? Uh, these giant textbooks. Yeah, and you know, and biology um, or exactly. So uh, we are in the fourteenth uh, edition of Philip Kotler's Marketing, mm-hmm. the best-selling marketing textbook in the world. Right. There won't be a 15th edition. Mm -hmm. Think of it more like, you know, FIFA 18, FIFA 19, (laughs) FIFA 20. It'll be marketing 2020 version 1, version 2. Digital first, designed for a mobile world. Uh, You update for when there's changes in the field of study, scientific Mm -hmm. breakthroughs, new case studies. You update for advances in AI Mm -hmm. as we think of new ways that we can provide more personal adaptive learning. And because you're breaking away from what was a very expensive and time-consuming analog-led model, uh, it's not just much more effective, much more personal, much better outcomes. Mm-hmm. It's much lower cost. Right. So, so the three hundred dollar textbook is so dead. What you had done, you had just use that as an example, the marketing text, yeah. which was 15, 14 editions, which is you keep updating it, you keep every and and there's. Hundreds of books like that. Yeah. There's t- the, these are the books that most college students and high school students use, yeah. whether it's a history book or whatever. And these are these big books that they now don't need to have at all, that they presumably have on their laptops or, or somewhere else. Or that they that what it moved to besides buying them was then renting them. Yeah, exactly. Right? There was a whole rental scheme yeah. at colleges and things like that. This is the entire elimination of them. 
Is that is that where you? Yeah, and I mean, and this is you know, I mean, I mean how you, many millions of books did you distribute? Well, if you follow, I mean, we yeah, I mean, we we sell. Uh, a good sort of 10 million units books. Of, of books uh, right. a year, uh, hundreds of millions of books a year. If you think that, you know, that f- disruption of that has been financially painful. So mm-hmm. uh, when I took over from Marjorie in 2013, uh, one in three courses in American universities uses Pearson content. Mm-hmm. Today, still, one in three courses in America use uh, Pearson content, mm-hmm. but the revenues have gone from... $2 billion to $1.3 billion. It's exactly. So the analog to digital transition in the short term has been painful. Mm -hmm. But now I think we've got a better, more sustainable business. So when you're seeing that happening as an executive, I always like, you know, it's interesting to talk to newspapers. I I know that area a lot better. But when you talk to people about this, what do you do when you, this is your business? Like, look, I mean, look, Apple's doing it. They're moving to services. That's becoming yeah. one of their big, not selling more iPhones is not going to be their business going forward, um, but selling services related to iPhones. And obviously iPhones will be an important part, but it's a similar kind of thing as you were, you were in this business for a long time. How do you shift your company when you're thinking about Well, it? the, uh, you know, uh, there's a famous phrase, the first step in solving a problem is recognizing you've got one. Right, right. And uh, I think we found, which I think many incumbents find, Mm -hmm. is the first stage is getting through denial as Mm -hmm. quickly as you can. Every fiber of the organization's being grabs on every data point that tells you that the first dip in revenues is cyclical, not mm-hmm. structural. Right. And I, I heard something in the advertising industry talk recently about, oh, this is cyclical, not structural, and I just wince because mm-hmm. whenever, there's a, whenever there's a cyclical problem, right. there's something structural lurking in the right. shadows. So right. I think 100%. that, and then I think recognizing what you're still good at. So, you know, the fact that our content is no less highly valued. Our mm-hmm. assessment capabilities is no less highly valued. It's still been used mm-hmm. in much the same way. What's happened is, uh, you know, you mentioned sort of Chegg, Amazon moved into the rental market. Mm-hmm. So essentially what we found is actually our biggest competitor was secondhand sales of our own right. intellectual property. Once you get your head around that and you just accept that actually $300 textbook is dead, mm-hmm. we have to reinvent and make a future for this company around, you know, $40 to rent an ebook, uh, $80 for a completely integrated package that provides much more personalization, adaptive mm-hmm. assessment capabilities that support faculty. That's still a sustainable business. But then it provides a platform by which we can, if you like, be the the disruptor. So the relationship with Arizona State University empowering a whole new range of online universities grew out of the fact... Because you have the content Because they had the content... and because they the content and they have the students. Well, and also because I think um, they would recognize that we have a sort of... uh, you know, intellectual feel for the value of the academy, for the importance of teaching, that Mm -hmm. we recognize why faculty are good at what they do and we could work with them. Uh, we, you know, a whole area where we work with uh, professional certification, recognizing mm-hmm. that, you know, probably you know, even when I took over from Marjorie, we thought primarily in terms of, you know, K through 12 and right. then higher education, maybe a little bit of graduate. Now we're in a world of, of lifelong learning. You know, right. the idea that you'll need to retrain, sure. reskill throughout your working life. How do we think about that? Uh, having 
address the cost inflation issue in textbook publishing, which only accounts for sort of one or two percent of total student spend, Mm -hmm. you know, cost inflation in higher education in America over the last 30 years has been unbelievable. Uh, That issue needs to be addressed. How can we help and what role can we play in making high quality education much more affordable, much more accessible, much more relevant to more people? All right. We're here with John Fallon. He is the CEO of Pearson, which is the biggest education company in the world. I think it's the largest educate. You call what do you call yourself? Now? We call ourselves the uh, the learning company. The learning company. All right. I just want to know. And the reason know- for that is because this is the other big thing about this is in that year days when we were publishing all those textbooks, we invested so much time and effort in the greatest academic rigor. We had absolutely no way of knowing what outcomes they helped to achieve. Right, right. Now for every product we launch we know that is excellent, and that and that. So there's real focus on right. you know, and, and efficacy. We describe it, but outcomes is incredibly important. All right, we'll talk about that and more when we get back with John Fallon, who's the CEO of Pearson. We'll take a quick break now. And we'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with John Fallon, the CEO of Pearson. I'm in London right now, and we're talking about the the education business. Pearson used to be a textbook company, essentially. Whatever, if you were a student, when, as I was, you carried around these giant, heavy textbooks. You tried to kill cats with them. Um, they could kill. You could drop one on it. I remember my economics book was enormously heavy. I probably have back problems today because of carrying it around. This idea of digital efficacy, it's a really interesting one. Because first I want to talk about the the disruptors that are, have been trying to sort of move in on this. There's there's so many Silicon Valley startups, many of which are struggling. A lot of these online universities, a lot of these things that are seeking to replace you. One of the things they are lacking, from, and it doesn't bother them, I know that, is the actual content. They don't have the educational content or the educational rigor. Um, talk a little bit about the, the enormous money going into these startups that are—there there were— dozens of these edu startups. And I still am 
questioning whether any of them have, have really broken out in a really significant way. There's ones that, you know, help. There's ones that LinkedIn bought one. What was that one called? Anyway, that was Lin- Linda.com. Linda.com. You know, everyone's trying to buy these, which is trying to get uh, to get better at your job or get certification in computer stuff. There's some that teach you to play the ukulele. There's some that teach students. There's some that, that you know, Mark Zuckerberg's backed a number of of initiatives in order to change education completely, like to transform education. But at the heart of it is this idea that digital will solve everything, that if we are only able to model these things and understand what students want, we don't need teachers almost. I know they say that. They don't, but it's behind It's behind the eyes. It's like that this can be done. Everything that can't be digitized will be digitized is one of the things I say a lot. That's the mentality. Talk a little bit about this when you're facing enormous amounts of venture funding, all kinds of new theories about that. Nothing wrong with that. Talk about what it's like when you have a one of these companies that has already been in this business for so long. Well, I think you uh, you have to recognize, one, what it is you're really good at, but also really understand your customers and really understand... Uh, to use a terribly old-fashioned word, uh, the pedagogy. Mm -hmm. There is an art and science to learning, and you learn by doing. You learn by teaching others. Uh, You know, you have normless people talking about, well, I'm going to be the Netflix, or I'm going to be the Spotify, or I'm going to be doing this. And... And there are things we can learn from that because this is absolutely the Netflix or Spotify generation. So in terms of a business model, they want to rent or subscribe. They want, they right. don't want to own. And they do want an incredible... Which incre- makes sense. Which makes sense. Level. And they also even, even want... from an environmental point of view. And they also want an incredible user experience, right. uh, which is which is really important and is something that has been you know challenging for, for us and many other publishers over time. But... You know, obviously great television or great movies, uh, you know, can make you laugh and make you cry and make you think, but you sit back and you consume. Mm -hmm. Education, you lean in Mm -hmm. and you do. And I think if you don't understand... If you don't don't understand that, that learning is complex and it's messy and you, you know, you learn and you get some feedback and you go again... And you, as I say, you learn by sharing and you learn by teaching somebody else. Right. That, so I, I think the, um, you know, uh, education is riven with a lot of false dichotomies and the, perhaps the worst of them all at the moment is somehow that this is teacher or technology. Mm-hmm. This is teacher and technology. It's not human or machine, it's human and machine. I think we'll talk a little bit about how we are deploying uh, artificial intelligence. We very much think about it as a as an intelligence assistant. It's there to support and enable and empower a teacher and a student. It doesn't displace right, or change that news, human what dynamic. What you're going to be doing? What is this digital textbook? We are uh, launching in September the first of a new generation of apps called Ada. A I D A. It's a very British name. Is it a British? Well, it's a sort of partly tribute to Ada Lovelace. I got it's it. It's partly yeah. a recognition that uh, AI is about British, aiding. Right? She was, yeah, <laughs> aiding and supporting and, ana- yeah. and, ana- I love it. and I enabling. Love I don't like most names, I'll tell uh, you. And the, uh, so I mean, uh, you know. I'm sorry, for yeah. those who don't know who Ada Lovelace is, explain. I, they should know. Uh, so Ada Lovelace was one of the, uh, I think with Charles Badgett and one or two others, was one of the absolute sort of pioneers of the earliest stages of computing. The, the computing. So. Yeah. So, you know, way before Alan Turing and what was happening out at IBM on the West Coast and all of, and all of that. Yes. The first of these apps is really aimed at uh, calculus 
introductory calculus course, as it's known in America. It'd be an introductory math course that you'd take if you were doing any science or engineering degree. Yes, they did not take that course. Uh, It's one of the hardest courses. Uh, One of the biggest reasons people drop out of STEM degrees is Mm -hmm. they don't master uh, calculus. And so most of what we do, as I was explaining, is around helping and supporting the teacher-student relationship. This is the first app we've launched, which is aimed directly at students. So you have the relationship. So we have the relationship. And the way it will work is, one of the things we've learned is the best way to solve a math problem Mm-hmm. is still to get a piece of paper and a pen, mm-hmm. write out the problem, and then solve it longhand. This will enable you to do that, take a photo of what you've written on your mobile phone, send it to the Pearson app, and within five seconds, the machine has translated it into text, has marked it for you, mm-hmm. and provided a view. So there may be seven steps in the problem, you've got the first three right, you've struggled with the fourth. It provides that feedback to you. It's step by step to you. There's something like a um, hundred different concepts that you have to master in introductory calculus. Sure. If you're designing a textbook or a, a lecturer designing a course, you teach those a hundred concepts in a linear way, sure. building one other, which is the only rational way you can teach something when you're trying to do it to large numbers of people. This enables us to then also teach them in a non-linear way, which means it's personal and adaptive to so you. So people learn. So, it, so it's, it's personalized and adaptive. But again, I would argue this is very much complementary and supportive right, so of a teacher. you're going to have the relationship with the student directly, what is the need of the teacher? Then? Well, because I think then it would be, it's, it's, this is not likely to be sufficient in itself to replace, you know, the student's still going to be studying at a university. Mm-hmm. We could see a scenario where it's bundled with the, the course, mm-hmm. where it's uh, feedback. Uh, I was at a major university in the, in the, the south of the U.S. recently, one of the biggest and most forward-thinking math departments. I, des- I described it to him and he said, you know, we'd love to have, have that. So we've, we're launching it first as a direct-to-consumer, but you can imagine lots of different applications. Right. And we're starting so with calculus, but it this. could be across different, lots of different just, subjects. Again, a student would get this and then just go through it themselves. You couldn't teach yourself calculus with it. You, you couldn't were... teach yourself calculus, but you could use it to, you know, I've got, I've got an ass- I've got an assignment, I'm struggling with this, Concept. maybe this will complement and supplement it. And as I say, if it was bundled, you could then see a scenario where, with the student's permission, you could then share the insight and feedback with the teacher, mm-hmm. who would then be able to say, so they had 100 well, students in the class. already doing a little bit of a that, version so of this yeah. in Spanish. And they yeah, do, exactly. They do, it's more like practices. It's that, practices. This has got, I mean, I, this will have you know, a lot of rigor to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other interesting thing is as part of it, we've, um, you know, uh, created a lot of the content that goes with it. Mm -hmm. And we've drawn very heavily on our experts and all obviously the, Mm -hmm. the capabilities we have in this area. But when you are designing for a mobile app, Mm -hmm you actually have to go back to very first principles right, and sure. create a difference. So I think you will see... So and it's and phone-based or iPad Yeah, it's mobile phone. And this actually goes back to one of your... Uh, you know, you were asking me earlier about what lessons do you mm-hmm. learn is we have to exist in a sort of like a twin track, mm-hmm. almost two-speed world. We have to continue to transform and adapt courseware for mm-hmm. professors to teach 
Right. In campus-based situations or in institutions. And in addition, there's also a lot more informal, complementary, different types of learning, mm-hmm. which is a different experience. And, and doing both draws on a lot of sure. the same expertise, but it's a different so experience. These ADAP, it's a so different one is design. in calculus, you're releasing individualized ones. Calculus is the first one, and then there will be a whole other range of areas, another uh, area, big application for AI. So we have used artificial intel machine learning for many years mm-hmm. in our high stakes assessments. So if you take... So you're assessing, explain, you assess tests. Yeah, so take you're, a, uh, if you take the Pearson test of English, right. uh, which is uh, a test that's used to for immigration purposes in many countries, for citizenship purposes, or for admission if you're a non-native speaker and you want to go and uh, study at an English-speaking university. Mm -hmm. Um, The speaking and listening, all elements of that test is is marked by machines. Mm -hmm. We've taught the machines to to mark that test. Uh, Something like speaking, the level of accuracy of the mark is much better Mm -hmm. because you remove all human bias. Uh, You get the result much more quickly and you get the feedback that is personal to you and helps you to improve. It's assessment for learning. I'm just going to use it because, you know, there's been so much controversy around predictive policing and everything else in terms of uh, if they're dealing with someone of color or someone and not. Does that that go into your thinking of, like, who you're testing or... or well, as I say, it's completely uh, the the What's test that? itself does not know the person, mm-hmm. and it doesn't uh, it doesn't know their nationality or ethnicity. It's purely on the basis of the fluency of their. Have uh, you ever thought about? I mean, because facial recognition would work very well in your in your field, could possibly in terms of people interacting that way. How do you look at those things? I just did an interview with an Amazon executive where he said it's not our responsibility how it's used, essentially. Uh, I think it it is our responsibility as to how it's used, and uh, our responsibility is to empower people to you know progress in their lives through learning more effectively. So everything we do is about enhancing teaching and learning, and we wouldn't ever get caught in doing anything well, other if, than that. If you're applying AI to a lot of learning, which obviously testing testing is a very good area, um, looking for patterns. When you get into more complex thing, which is less, this is the answer. That makes sense when it becomes more, which learning, most of learning is about the the more subtle things. How do you then apply AI to that? So uh, it can provide individual feedback to Mm -hmm. the student. It Mm -hmm. can say, well, you've mastered this concept, but you're struggling here. So here's here's where you should focus more effort. Here's a tip Mm -hmm. from you. Here's a little snippet of a video. Uh, Here's a person you can talk to. Here's a classmate. Mm-hmm. who's actually mastered this. Right. Uh, and actually the classmate will learn as well because we learn by teaching others what right. we what right. we know. One of the, uh, you know, I have a daughter who's just finishing at University College London. One of her complaints and one of her mm-hmm. colleagues' complaints is, uh, you know, they submit an essay takes forever to get the essay back. When they do, they've got a fairly perfunctory mark, doesn't mm-hmm. provide them with a help and feedback. Uh, a tool we have in development at the moment would enable a professor to assign an essay, mark the first 20 or so herself, mm-hmm. at which point the machine would say, I'll I take see. over from here, okay. and I can mark the rest of these essays to the rubric that you have taught watching, me. Watching the professor. Watching you, and you can come back in at any point and see how I've marked it, how the machine has marked it, and correct it, and the machine will then learn that and reflect it through. That's scary to people. 
Like, that's that's an essay. There's one thing, but the answer is four, and it has to be four, or whatever the answer is, when it comes to more thoughtful things. Even though, you know, a lot of the technology is being used to see for, if kids are plagiarizing or using yeah. the thing, too. There's, you know, pattern matching and things like that. But the idea of taking more sophisticated thoughts and letting the machine do it, I, I, don't, I do think we're not very far away from that. But how does that change the teacher well, and, and technology? And, and to be clear, you're right to say we're not far away from it. What I've described is something we are trying to do. We've, mm-hmm. not yet, we've not yet mastered. I think, to me, the important thing is the teacher is in control. Mm-hmm. It's the teacher that sets the rubric and the machine that applies it. Mm-hmm. And I think we are quite a long way from machines being able to, uh, you know, I think machines are very good at mimicking something that is set and directed for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think this is a uh, a big enhancement to the productivity of teachers because it frees them up right. to do add more value, right. value right. added things and it's better for the student because it provides so quicker rid of the rote parts it, exactly it gives it gives better feedback but what i do agree with you is you know and you know learning the lessons from some of the unintended consequences of social media mm-hmm. uh, they're intended but go ahead. yeah well but but <laughs> i mean can, what i what i mean is um, no it's not intended i, I think that is uh, i think adaptive personalized learning right. has huge opportunities and huge excitement in order to reach more people reach more people provide them with Make more feedback do actually what the best teachers have always done mm-hmm. but what is it we don't know we don't know? Right. How do we ensure, for example, that as we become more adaptive and more personalized, we're opening up opportunities for people, not closing them down? Sure. One of the great benefits of education is the serendipity. Mm-hmm. That moment when you suddenly find that you love a subject or a passion or you're good at something that you didn't know. How right. do we ensure that as we adapt technology and apply it, it's opening up those opportunities, not closing them down. We don't know how the brain, how the way the human brain functions will change. You how, know, I, how do you, how do you, I, I agree with you on this, how do you assess the, the efforts that Silicon Valley has done in these these MOOCs and everything else? How, where do you see it? It's been a very slow going, especially when profits has been extraordinarily slow going. How do you assess them all? Because there's been so many and they were sort of all this is going to change everything, and it really hasn't changed everything yet. It's moving in that direction, obviously, and you can see so much of education can be streamlined, I guess, in a lot of ways, including textbooks. It makes perfect sense. How do you assess where we are now? Well, I think certainly uh, a lot of what they have done or what has come out of the Valley has then enabled us to do what we're now able to do. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, we launch our first, you know, whatever I was describing earlier about the the generation of the next uh, way of digital courseware and the apps, that's built on a lot of underlying, you know, technology. So a lot of, you know, it's it's based on technology that's come out of Google. It's based on technology that's come out of Amazon. Uh, Our new global learning platform is built on on Amazon Web Services. So we've (laughs) taken taken a lot of the tools that they have created for wider applications and said, Mm -hmm. how do we use our knowledge and insights of learning science and, and education to then apply them in a more sort of specific way? I think the uh, you know on the on the MOOCs on massive open online courses. I think yes, uh, the hype 
far sort of uh, you know outlive yeah but I mean I think if you now look at um, yeah if you look at what uh, edX are doing I mean mm-hmm. we, we partner with edX we've taken a lot mm-hmm. of their short courses and, and they're applying them in places like India and mm-hmm. China which is creating lots of sort of great opportunities uh, we have a very small shareholding in uh, Coursera I think the way they're reinventing themselves now is quite interesting Um I think, you know, back to your earlier point, a lot of the original technology money went into K-12. Right. And I think that has proved very, very difficult, especially mm-hmm. commercially. Now, I think much more of it is going into employability, lifelong like learning, right. this idea that, you know, if we're all going to live to 100 and work well into our 80s and 90s and we're going to have five or six different careers you have uh, to have new skills you have to have new skills and so that's when you know and there's interesting companies like plural site for example who are starting to sort of move right. into that space it's, it's an area big area of Fair. growth where we're making a lot of investment and i think those are probably more fertile ground because then you don't have a lot of the other more sort of institutional and cultural challenges that probably you've got in public education. Yeah, absolutely. We're here with the CEO of Pearson, John Fallon. We're talking about where educational tech is going. When we get back, I want him to talk a little bit about where he sees the future if he goes goes out many years. And I can't leave here without asking him a little bit about the situation here in Britain since he's been in politics. Uh, When we get back. Drowning in status updates and lost in endless emails? Break free with ClickUp.com, the one app to replace them all. Imagine a world where your team collaborates effortlessly in one shared space. No more chaos, just ClickUp. Your projects, tasks, and communication unified at last. Transform how you work with customizable views, seamless integration, and real-time updates. ClickUp is your shortcut to more productive days and happier teams. Join the millions of productive teams already streamlining their workflow. Visit ClickUp.com to get started. We're here with John Fallon, the CEO of Pearson. We're talking about edutech, uh, which I hate all these expressions, but I do think education is something that, just like healthcare, it's been really slow to shift with technology beyond kids using iPads or Chromebooks in schools, which is still, that that was, again, another thing heralded that was going to change everything. It didn't. It hasn't. How do you look at the school of the future? There's been all kinds of predictions of what it should happen. And let's set aside K through 12 because that's has been admired in in troubles and, and all kinds of arguments in the United States, at least. Talk a little bit about where you see, uh, once you launch these apps, you're hoping students will use them in every subject, correct? Yeah. And I, I think- So you're starting with calculus or is there- We're starting in calculus, but it will apply across every, in time, across every sort of subject range. But math works first. But. Yeah, I think it's a good area. I think a lot of, I think you should just need to sort of take a step forward and then come back if you like and and what does the world of work look like in Mm -hmm. 10 or 15 years time in a world that you know is radically disrupted by sort of automation and robotics and and the like and i don't know if you remember there was um the first of the studies in this area was i think about five or six years ago and it was you know 47 percent of all jobs in america are going to be sort of automated within 15 years i keep saying that and uh that was a uh, the co-author of that was a guy called mike osborne who's the professor of machine learning at um the oxford martin school obviously here Mm -hmm. in the uk and i remember we got talking to him and you know like all good academics he told us all the things that were wrong with his own research and how it was sort of flawed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we commissioned another major piece of research, which basically combined 
human expertise and insight about the future of work with machine learning. So it was a combination of the two. And it looked not just at the impact of technology, but of demographics, urbanization, uh, growing political uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And what it told you was, and we looked at not where there's going to be more jobs and where will there be less jobs in 10 years, but actually, as importantly, what are the underlying skills that are most going to be in demand in the workplace? Right. The ability to learn how to learn, fluency of ideas, mm-hmm. innovation, understanding and empathy of how others will react, uh, things like sociology, understanding how organizations, uh-huh. psychology, the things that make us uniquely human. Right. So if we're designing, you know, if we're thinking about how education should evolve, mm-hmm. Those are things, the skills that have traditionally been taught by liberal arts degrees Mm -hmm. and have been seen to be, you know, things that the elite Mm -hmm. clearly had. We see a world of talent. We see those are skills and knowledge that everybody in this world is capable of having and deploying. And so how do we design education and learning in a way that enables everybody to acquire those skills and do so not just in high school or between the ages of 20, 18 and 22, but to go throughout on doing life. so throughout working life. So I think so what it, you will see is education that becomes much more flexible, much more adaptive, uh, that you don't have to go away, you know, travel hundreds of miles away from home to acquire them, that you can acquire them in the workplace, that you can acquire them as alongside bringing up a family or tendering for an older right. relative, right. and that you can... Everybody is capable of acquiring them, and they're capable of acquiring them at any time in any stage in their life. You know, my kids, my one of my kids is about to apply to college, and I'm part of me is like, why? Like, why can't he just learn this all somewhere? Like, what is what is the need to go somewhere and have me fork over all my money to do so? It's and I hate to agree with Peter Thiel on anything, but I have to say, you know, it's a really interesting. I I have I have sort of mixed views on this because. You know, the data would tell you that that's still a smart decision, that, Mm -hmm. you know, as of today, uh, the uh, earnings premium Mm -hmm. of someone who's got a four-year degree is somewhere, well, it's as low as, I think it's as low as 40% in North Dakota, but it's as Mm -hmm. high as 100, you know, in Peter Thiel's state of California. Yeah. A four-year graduate with a four-year degree earns twice as much throughout their working yes, life as somebody who doesn't. Even somebody who's got. A I c- meant the physical part of it. It's a really. Interesting, I agree. I, I mean, I think that. I just that's, think about that, like when I go to university. Yeah, there's, I mean, I and so ones here, uh, you know, back to um, you know, back to the where we were talking earlier. I mean, we were talking with our partners at Arizona State University in the online business there, uh, online program. The typical student would be. 26, 27 years of age. Mm -hmm. They've probably had a couple of goes of getting a university degree and Mm -hmm. failed. They've now got perhaps a family, they're working, but they've still got that burning desire to learn. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their confidence is fragile. The most unexpected thing can -hmm. can knock them off track. And so how we think about this in a much more flexible way, but maybe uh, we give credit for prior achievement credentials become much more stackable and transferable. Why couldn't I take a course with King's College London virtually and one with Arizona State University and one with the University of New South Wales? And and why couldn't this 
time I spent at Microsoft, mm -hmm. I got some credit for, and you know, and using sort of blockchain or related technologies, everybody has their learning passport, which they take with them through life and which mm -hmm. they develop and evolve. That's a great idea. I think passport. that's the way, I think that's the way this is, this is going. And it's very much the way so, we're trying to design and build our business. Let me finish it. Think about your business. Yeah. You know, you, your competitors right now, your typical competitors are McGraw-Hill and, and, um, I guess Hachette, I suppose. Yeah, well, it's sort of. How do you, uh, who do you see as your competitors, and then what do you do when the revenue is? You're talking about a business that is contracted from a revenue. You're selling three hundred dollars textbooks. Now you're selling these. You have to sell a whole lot more of them. That's one part, and that's that's great because you can sell a whole lot more of them. But who are your? Who do you consider your competitors? And then how do you create a business like that? It's just more people using your products. Presumably. So the. Uh, I mean, I think we're like uh, a lot of incumbents in other sectors that have gone through this transformation. We're now at a point where, you know, as I say, we're about $5 billion in annual revenues. That's a third of our business that is growing at double digits every year. Partnering with universities to launch purely online degrees, professional certification, virtual schools, uh, teaching and learning English as a second language, the work we're doing in places like China. And then with two-thirds of our business, which was the more sort of traditional analog business, where the rate of decline is slowing mm -hmm. as we now get over the digital hump. Mm -hmm. So we're in this sort of exciting point where, you know, we've been through five really tough years. We've had to take a billion dollars of costs and more out of the business, create a much more digital platform-based company. But we're now at a point where actually the growth rate could be get quite exciting because mm -hmm. the structural well, growth you, you opportunities you begin to... Others, sorry? You have the goods that these Silicon Valley companies don't. You don't yeah, have that, the that's the, that's the, <laughs> and, have and the, the And so our competitors are, you know... Uh, in one part of our business, the competitors are Cengage and McGraw-Hill. In another part, it would be, uh, you know, uh, K12 Inc. In another part, it might be Coursera or 2U. In another part of the business, it's sort of ETS. Or, right. yeah, I mean, I mean we, we, we compete across a whole range of, of different sectors. There's no one quite do trying to do what we're trying to do. Imagine a larger company wanting, like Amazon purchasing you would be fascinating to me. Like, would you ever think like that? Um, and I Google mean, sort of dabbled in this for a while. They I mean, what's interesting is, uh, you know, if we'd been having this conversation with, about Amazon uh, five years ago, we'd have thought of it purely in terms of them as a, a bookseller. As a bookseller. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Amazon Web Services powers uh, the global learning platform. Yes. But likewise, uh, if you want a job in customer services at Amazon uh, in a non-English speaking country, they use uh, the Pearson Versant test, mm -hmm. so that so there's a, a so, you know so the the sort of the nature of the dynamic and the relationship between right. Pearson and Amazon becomes more multifaceted. As we we know we hope very much there'll be a partner as we think about how we uh, we move into much more of a subscription rental type sure. uh, good at that. business. So it's, it becomes a different type of, of dynamic and a different type of relationship. Right? Do you see any of the big tech companies moving? They've they've they have, but they have had been largely unsuccessful. I, I would say that you know we work. Uh, likewise, we have very close relationships with uh, with Microsoft. Again, mm -hmm. uh, Microsoft is actually a big 
customer of, of ours. We mm. run all of the uh, Microsoft certification, which I should hasten to add, we run on uh, Azure, not on uh, not <laughs> not on uh, not on AWS. So we we have an extensive range. I think you know back to my early point. I ra- I largely see what they do as uh, complementary, right. and we're building on the platform and scale. Mm-hmm. But what we're doing requires a much sort of deeper understanding of teaching and learning, right. which we've obviously acquired over many, many years. All right, I'm going to finish up. Just, you've been in politics for a long time watching watching this. A lot of Texas has gotten involved in politics. There's all kinds of things going. How do you look at it from here? What is the, you're about to have Boris Johnson as your PM, I think. Um, Sorry to put you on the spot about this. I think that... Uh, uh, so from a, uh, you know, I, speaking from a Pearson perspective, obviously we operate in 70 countries around right. the world. We're bipartisan. We've got used to working with, mm-hmm. with governments of all sort of uh, political hues. I sort of, I do worry that there's a, a rancor and a bitterness to the public discourse that is not doing anybody any good. Mm-hmm. And here in Britain, as in, as in, in America and elsewhere, we have to learn to find ways to disagree with each other in a more mm-hmm. sort of respectful way than we have. And uh, I think, uh, I think the other thing that's interesting uh, observing this is, <clears throat> excuse me, that we have a a two, you know, an electoral system mm-hmm. that was divined for a two-party world, right. where those two parties were normally sort of varying hues of the same color. Mm-hmm. We've now in a world where, you know, there's perhaps more uh, sort of, you know, stronger. Mm -hmm. I'll avoid using the word extreme because that's probably a bit too pejorative. And so I think it's leading a big part of the centre ground, Mm -hmm. certainly here in the UK and arguably elsewhere, sort of on, you know, there's a lot of people who frankly are politically homeless. Right. And the electoral system as it stands is not able to accommodate Education. And I don't know how that I don't know Education. how that changed. So I think that is a <laughs> yeah, that, is clearly, that is a clearly important. Thank it you is, for letting me off no the problem. hook because there's no, no way because there's no really, there's no way of winning with really an answer there. Is to, to see, it's the same thing. It's the same thing worldwide. I've traveled recently a lot, and it's fascinating to watch what's going on. Brought rendered asunder by tech, and there's ways tech can really be. I'm trying to lean into solution based tech this year. Yeah, uh, I'm, I've been chastising them quite a bit for un. I don't think they're unintended consequences. I think they were fully intended uh, in a different way than you're thinking. Anyway, last question. Will there be an Oxford-Cambridge in 20, 50 years? Yes, I think there will because I think they are... Because they're pretty. <laughs> they're, uh, yeah, but also I think they... Uh, I think, one, there will be a... a nee- you know, there still be... They have a niche and an important role... These kinds in, of schools. ...in the market. But I think there is also a new type of institution that will emerge. I think you could see the first truly global mm-hmm. university that could emerge. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, American, Chinese, British, Australian, uh, India. You know, I yeah. think that 
that uh, is focused not on the top 1%, but the top 100%, right. that takes the view that every person in this world is right. capable of learning and achieving more of themselves, mm-hmm. and that excellence and quality does not mean exclusion. Absolutely. It can mean I inclusion. think the problem in our world is that's not... What will, I think that's what will emerge, quite what that looks like, I don't know, but I tell you, we very much want Pearson to be at the heart of making All it right. happen. All right, good, good, well done. I always do think that the problem, I've been saying this a lot, and uh, is that there's it's not a lack of talent, it's an opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Which is interesting. I really appreciate it. This has been a fascinating conversation. This is John Fallon, who's the CEO of Pearson, which is the largest educational company in the world, I think. Uh, John, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. How do people find Pearson at Pearson? Pearson.com. Okay, great. And what Twitter? Do you tweet, John? I do, I do. <laughs> John Fallon, at John Fallon. Okay, at tweet at him. If you like this episode, you really appreciate if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Also, thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to David Prest and Ollie Morris at Whistledown Studios here in London. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. <laughs> 